Welcome to Canada's podcast. Hi, this is Celine Williams hosting from Ontario for Canada's podcast. My guest today is Josh Title, the CEO and founder of the Canadian sustainable children's toy brand, Kate and Levi, and that's Kate with a C. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. I'm excited. To, I don't often get to talk to people who work with and play with toys all the time, so I'm excited about this. Um, but before we jump into that, I'm going to, I'm curious how about your journey to get to running, creating, founding a toy brand, let alone a sustainable toy brand. How did that come about? Yeah, for sure. Um, the truth is I've always been drawn to, um, to being an entrepreneur. Um, I, I have always had a uh, creative inkling. Um, actually, growing up, my mom was always very creative and had different crafts going, whether it was knitting or needlepoint, or she went through like a calligraphy phase. And my dad was always a um, small business owner. Um, he used to import uh, textiles from the Far East for women's clothing manufacturers in Canada. So that was sort of my experience growing up. And I feel, and I always sort of felt like I was sort of a, a mixture of the two. So my mom's creativity and my dad's business acumen. And I really, um, I really never applied it until um, finishing, when I finished college, I actually went traveling um, to Australia and New Zealand. And I found this really cool leather backgammon set. This is, this predates Kate and Levi. And I, you know, I sort of lugged it around with me and I brought it home and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next or what I was going to do for my career, but I showed it to a friend of mine who, um, was also, uh, you know, had the entrepreneurial bug and, and without pausing, he just said, all right, let's make it and sell it. So we, you know, we, with this one sort of travel backgammon set, we started um we started manufacturing and ultimately turned that into a successful small business um and fast forward seven or eight years and we sold it um took some took some time off i, I took some time off and then teamed up with a designer who was making uh, children's products so she was actually making products out of recycled wool sweaters um <laughs> However, I did sort of, I, I did sort of jump over another uh, interesting part of my journey, which was um, while while I was starting my first business, I also, um, for whatever reason, wrote the LSAT and applied to law school, and didn't really have much of a plan other than I had really supportive parents who always encouraged more and more education. So I applied to, um, I applied to law school when I started my first business and I got in and, and I, I remember talking to my parents about it and saying, you know, I'm starting this business, but I also just got into law school. What should I do? And like, there was no, in their mind, there was no question, like you get in, you're going. So I didn't really, again, I didn't give it too much thought. I just went and luckily, I had a business partner who was not going to law school and was able to work on the day to day of the business. But I, you know, but I stayed involved throughout that time and was able to was able to do both. So pretty interesting journey. So how that is fascinating. So how I have a few questions, but I 
I want to ask about, I, I'm going to assume that you are not currently practicing law as well as I am not currently practicing law. So basically, I, I did three years of law school at University of Windsor. And then um, and then I did my one year of articling um, at a business law firm in downtown Toronto. But it was funny because my manufacturing was also downtown, but west of west of the financial district, more in the garment district. So there were days when I was articling where I would need to go over to my manufacturing facility. So I would literally, you know, take my suit jacket off, leave it on the back of my chair, leave a hot cup of coffee on my desk and sort of run over to Bathurst and uh, Adelaide to, you know, to do something in relation to my own company. And then, you know, and then, you know, run back to uh, the law firm to, you know, to, resume my duties there. So that went on for the 10 or 11 months that I was articling. But then by the time I finished articling, um, my first company was at a sustainable enough size that I made the decision to leave law and pursue that full time. Got it. So that uh, so it's really interesting when people study when someone studies something has a degree in something like law that most you know i think there's a general perception that if you study law if you study medicine if you study certain things then you're that's your passion and you're going to pursue that for the rest of time and that's the thing that you do and i think it's really interesting when people study something like that and make a very specific choice to not pursue that. And I imagine it's come to come in handy because all of the things that we learn come in handy at a certain point in time. But, you know, having the ups and downs and the realities of being an entrepreneur, because they are real, and I imagine that you have experienced them as well. Um, have, have there, what's kept you in the entrepreneur world? What's been the inspiration to keep doing that instead of going, you know what, I have a law degree, I could go figure out being a lawyer if I want to at some point? Yeah, listen, it's an interesting question. And there's certainly been times throughout, um, you know, I've now run two businesses, built and run, operated two companies. And there's definitely been nights in, in, in both businesses where I'm sort of lying awake, um, thinking about what it is that I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And did I choose the more difficult path? <laughs> why don't I just have a normal job and career like, like I could with the, with the degree that I have, but I guess at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know that I chose to be an entrepreneur. I think it's just who I am. Um, and even at the low points where things aren't necessarily going my way, for whatever reason, I have enough staying power to sort of wait it out for the next, for the next wave to catch. So yeah, I mean, I think at this point, I'm probably past the point of going back. Although, I don't know, it was only a few years ago that I was thinking like, okay, maybe it's time to do something a little bit more mainstream. I mean, there's definitely aspects. I don't know if I, if I were to go back to law and it's not really in my mind anymore, but if I were to go back to that, I'm thinking about it. Like, I don't know that I would be drawn to even business law. Like mm. part of law that I was always most intrigued about was criminal. Um, so would I, would I 
try to stage a third career and and go back and be defense counsel? I don't know. I mean, I would never say never, but it's not it's I'm not there right now. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um you know, you mentioned some of the low those nights when the at the low points. I'm curious what have been some of the hardest moments of being an entrepreneur and what have been some of the best moments for you? For sure. I mean, listen, when I was younger and building my first business uh, called Tygo Enterprises with a good buddy of mine, um, like that's sort of a period of time where it's like, you don't even, looking back, it's like, I couldn't even appreciate how amazing it was at the time just because I hadn't been through it before. But like being a young person with not a lot of responsibility and the ability to really take take risk um with with not a lot of you know with not a lot of downside like that's a really special time um in terms of in terms of you know low point like that would you know that's probably as good as it gets um having said that though it's like i then sold it had some time off and got to do it again knowing now what i didn't know then so it's like also like a really interesting period to sort of go back and do it again but it's with a different energy level and maybe a little bit more cynicism than when you're younger and you don't realize how difficult it is um but i would say like starting again after selling the first business was really hard um but i would say the low points the listen the low points always come back to for me it always comes back to sales and i would say like in the last 5 years the really hard part was when the pandemic hit mm. we mostly for kate and levi we were mostly a wholesale model so we were selling to brick and mortar stores and within weeks everyone shut their doors and the business was essentially like you know my my current business partner and i you know we we're having these discussions like how much longer like we can't keep we can't keep paying the overhead if everyone's closed and that's sort of where the next opportunity emerged so it's like okay well brick and mortar isn't working what is Oh yeah, we set up this really we set up this Amazon account um a few years ago that we haven't really focused on. This is probably the time to dig in a little there. And sure enough, it's like Amazon exploded. We were there already, luckily, not strategically, but we had already built out our shop and started pushing it um during the uh you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. And sure enough, like Amazon kept the lights on and has now become the biggest part of our business. So it's it's interesting, right? It was like a really dark period, but our new and best channel emerged from that. Um, so yeah, like really, really lucky and, you know, really um, interesting time. It's so I've spoken to a few entrepreneurs in the past couple of years who had some sort of whether it was an in-person business like events or something or 
were dealing with brick and mortar, whether they were brick and mortar or they were making something that was sold through brick and mortar. And all of that changed dramatically. I mean, they either, you know, ended that business and started something new or they had to change their model in some way. Um, And I'm, you know, I want to acknowledge, I think it's incredible that you had that Amazon storefront already built out, even though you weren't using it, that you had done that. Lucky. Um, Yeah. But how was, what were, I mean, it's kind of cliche to say this, but what were some of the lessons that you learned in that change that stand out for you that you think this was important to note or this, or it would be helpful for someone else at some point to be aware of or think about these things? Yeah. Listen, I think as an entrepreneur, you just have to be open to being uncomfortable and to pivoting. And I think that's, you know, if you're, if you can't, if, if you're not able to sort of live through the uncomfortable periods, then you should choose a different career. But if you're open to being uncomfortable and to, you know, just sort of going, going with, you know, just sort of watching the waves and waiting for the next one, usually there's another opportunity, but you have to be, you have to be open to it. Mm-hmm. So you know, we could have just shut the business at the beginning of COVID and been done with it and then had, you know, gone on to have more stable and normal careers, but we didn't. And, you know, luckily we didn't because it worked, you know, it, it worked out again, but we were uncomfortable for a while and you have to be, you have to be open to that. I think we, so, you know, humans in general, not just entrepreneurs, I think entrepreneurs often less so than other folks in more traditional roles um we want to we we avoid we want to minimize discomfort in any way shape or form whether we're mm-hmm. avoiding it or not we want to minimize it so those uncomfortable moments come and it immediately becomes how do we get comfortable again as opposed to what you're talking about which is stay in the discomfort i'm not saying long term but enough to figure out what the wave is or to figure out what's coming or to try something new that we might not, you know, that that in and of itself is another layer of discomfort. For sure. Yeah. All the, <laughs> all of the above. So in moment, so in some of the waves that have come in both of your businesses and Kate and Levi, especially with, the pandemic, how I think that one of the things that I hear from entrepreneurs a lot is how do, how do you know? Like, how long do you wait it out? What do you, what's the, you know, do we wait out until we have no money left and then declare bankrupt? Like, how do you know? And I'm curious from your experience, how did you know? What were you looking for? What are signs that you were paying attention to? What are some of the things that you were looking at or keeping top of mind in the discomfort between the waves? Listen, everyone has their own risk tolerance. For sure. So I knew that if we couldn't figure out a way quickly 
to cash flow the business. I, my, my risk tolerance sort of my, my risk tolerance was capped there. So like this business at the very least has to cash flow itself. I'm not going to, you know, cause we were many years into it. So I wasn't prepared to go into my pocket and fund and fund it. It had to cash flow. So that was the first hurdle. And luckily, very quickly with Amazon at the time, um, we were able, we were able to do that. So that's like, you know, so once, once we were able to plug the leak, then it's a question of, okay, can we, you know, can we make it viable again? Can it be, can it be more than a break even? So I think it just depends on, on the person's risk tolerance. Like sometimes, you know, I'll watch Dragon's Den or Shark Tank and the the entrepreneur will say like, I took a second mortgage on my house. I used my kid's college fund, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, like good for you, but I'm not that I'm my risk tolerance is lower than yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not prepared to do that. Mm-hmm. So it just, which might explain why neither of my businesses have become massive. They're more lifestyle businesses. They pay, they pay me. Um, they pay my business partner. They cash flow positive, but, um, but they're not behemoths. So I think a lot of it just comes down to the risk profile of the owners. So I know, I sort of know where my red line is. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. Is, is it appealing to you at all to have or create a behemoth type business that is? Listen, I think when you're younger, I think when you're younger, those are the stories that you read about the most. So we're always reading about like, oh, the guy who started Shopify and built a hundred billion dollar, blah, 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 like whatever it is. Like it's always, you know, I feel like the media is always focused on the one in a billion huge stories, but there's so many small businesses out there that are that that are basically the backbone of Canada. They you know they have you know they uh, they they pay living they pay a living wage. The owners the owners do well, um, and I think those are the stories that we don't necessarily focus on enough. So like no, the truth is, water finds its level, and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so do I wish I had something much bigger? I don't know. It's sort of a crazy, it's a crazy, it's a crazy way to live and to think about things. It's like at the end of the day, we all just do our best. And this is what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah. I appreciate that answer because I think you're right. We hear so often, and I hear it when, you know, I when I talk to startup founders, especially where they're looking for funding to get them to this level to do this next thing. And I mean, if you're 25 years old, then you don't have a family and that's what you want to spend all your time doing. Great. Like focus on that for the time being. And there are a lot of other ways to be successful 
Yeah, but, and I, think, I I totally agree. And I don't think those stories are told enough. Like we're always glorifying the oh, so and so did a round C hundred million dollar blah blah blah, and it's like who cares? Like that's his path. Good luck wish them well, but that's not necessarily your path. Like I started my first business, literally my business partner and I, we each put in $2,500 that we had saved up as like young people from birthday gifts or something. Yeah, And we literally never put in another dollar and built it up to millions of dollars in sales and then had a successful exit, literally started with $5,000. Um, and just sort of figured it out as we went along. Like, and you can still do that. It's not, but it's not the stories that we hear about every day. It's always about so and so raised and acquired customers and they were taken over by blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just, I don't know when that story, like that, I don't know when that, uh, storyline took over, but. I don't think it has, it has to be that way. And that it doesn't have to be that way. And that was just never my calling. And still isn't. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think knowing that is really important because to your point, that is, those are often the stories we tell is growth in terms of, you know, millions of dollars of sales per year, not necessarily profitability growth in terms of the number of people you hire in a business, which is an insane metric to have as a, a metric of success. And then, you know, and in terms of investment, and it's like, there's a lot, there there are people who you know do well run successful businesses by their own metrics who are not wanting for whatever they need in life they travel they live whatever and they're working 20 hours a week because they've designed a business that allows them to do that and they're not going to be a hundred million dollar businesses and they don't want that because that is not going to be 20 hours a week yeah i agree and I appreciate your, not that I'm saying you only work 20 hours a week, I'm not, but I appreciate your story because it's not that of, I need to grow to this specific behemoth size and take over the world with toys. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just our own story. And it's, again, it just comes down to what we're comfortable doing. So I have a... This is kind of a, a pivot in the conversation. But I do have a question specifically about the sustainability aspect of the business you run, because sustainability is a huge topic in general when it comes to entrepreneurship. And there are a lot of, I, I know a lot of our listeners are uh, very passionate about sustainable businesses for themselves, whether they're creating it or investing in them or, you know, doing business with them, buying from them, whatever the case may be. And I'm so I'm curious, because I haven't heard a lot about toys that are sustainable. How um what that is in your what that is for Caden Levi, what the why it's important, what that looks like um in general. I know that's a vague question, but I don't want to make assumptions about beyond uh-huh. the original they were made with sweaters, right? Beyond that, I don't yeah. make assumptions about what it looks like now. Yeah, I mean, it's still a very, very much um, part of our brand story. So, you know, originally when I started Kate and Levi, 
I had teamed up with this designer that was making not children's stuff, but like homewares out of recycled uh, sweaters. And at the time, my wife and I were about to welcome our first son, Levi, into the world. And I noticed like as I was starting to, I've always been drawn to like the product world. So I was starting to investigate different products I would want for my own son and realized that there wasn't really a lot out there that was that was responsibly made and eco-friendly that was interesting. Like it was very, everything was very granola, vanilla looking. So at the same time, um, by sort of putting myself out there, I met this uh, designer and asked her if she could make a few stuffed animals that I would pay her for, for my son using the same manufacturing process. And sure enough, they turned out great and, you know, showed them around and um, had a great response. Um, and it just sort of grew from there. Today, when we come out with a new item or a new direction, like we also make items out of polar fleece right now, which has a percentage of recycled plastic in it. So it's like we're always looking at new projects through the same lens. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely it's it's important to us. And but we also realize like that's part of why we're not going to be the next, you know, spin master, because we don't make products for everybody. The truth is, a lot of people don't care about the environment. And they just want the cheapest, you know, the cheapest, lowest, lowest concept, you know, that after two months, when little Timmy's done with it, they'll just throw it away. So which is fine, like, that's just a different part of the market. We're, we're not in that market, we're trying to build products that you know that you'll keep for your you know that you'll put it once the child is done playing with it it becomes a bit of an heirloom and you'll put her away for the next generation does that happen every time no some lots of people still don't care however that's sort of that's sort of the philosophy which is basically buy less but buy better so mm -hmm. our products you know like our hand puppets can be thirty dollars whereas you know, a company like Melissa and Doug will sell five generic ones um, that they make offshore and they'll sell them for half the, you know, five for half the price. And it's not that one, it, they're just different. It's like, yeah. it's a different customer profile. Some people, some people prefer to buy less and buy better. And that's the customer that we're going after, which ultimately just means we're going to be smaller. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it's an important note that there are i mean we all we know we talk about knowing your your customer knowing that niching etc cetera, etc cetera, and there is absolutely a market for there always has been there always will be for something that is not cheaply made not meant to be discarded but is consciously created yeah in an intentional way and i think that's a a really important reminder for folks. Yeah. Um, before we wrap this up, I want to ask one last question, which sure. is if you could go back in time and give yourself when you were a fresh faced entrepreneur, one piece of advice, what ad advice would you give yourself? Hmm. Good question. Um, I think, I think you just have to, like, I think I would, I had an open mind, but I would like to go back, if I could go back in time and do it again, 
I would have an even more open mind to opportunities and possibilities. And, you know, anytime, anytime there was, anytime there was like the smallest door opening, I should invest, I should investigate. Like I was like, we did well, like we were successful. But when I look back, it's like, I remember, you know, we were once speaking to a big buyer um, about one of our products and she wanted us to make modifications and try to like customize it a little bit for them. And I didn't pursue it wholeheartedly. Mm. Whereas I think like, if I can go back in time, I should just like, I should, I should really just turn over every single stone um, and not leave, you know, just not leave anything unturned. And I think that's like really just have an as open a mind and be as wide eyed as possible, which we were, but you could always be more. So I think it just sort of comes down to attitude. I love that. And I think it's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate your time, Josh. Yeah. Um, for those listening, this will be in the show notes, but you can uh, learn more about Josh and Kate and Levi at kateandlevi.com. And that's C-A-T-E-A-N-D-L-E-V-I.com. And thanks for listening to Canada's podcast. Like, comment, and subscribe to all our channels to get the latest podcasts from entrepreneurs across Canada.